Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Marin Katusa, author of the new book, a New York Times bestseller, The Colder War, How the Global Energy Trade Slipped from America's Grasp. Marin is a leading expert on the energy and resource exploration sectors, his area of investment focus as a very successful portfolio manager. Since 2007, Marin has served as the chief energy investment strategist for Casey Research. Marin, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So first question is, why should every American pick up this book? You know, we there are caricatures of who Vladimir Putin is and what his endgame is. Your book kind of lays out what you think the real truth of the matter is. And why is it pivotal for Americans to understand sort of their enemy in Putin and the Russia that he's leading today? It's a great question, Ben, and I think it's very, very important for the average American to truly understand what's going on in the global markets from an energy perspective as Russia, under the leadership of Vladimir Putin, has aligned itself with other emerging markets such as China and others to work in concert against the interests of America globally and why this affects every American, not just in the U.S., but around the world, is the average the, the, the lifestyle that the average American has taken for granted today is at risk because of the petrodollar. Look at the demise of what we've seen in the last two mi- months in the price of oil. This is covered in our book and we discuss what are the risks moving forward. And as the emerging markets move away from the U.S. dollar, this becomes very risky for the average Let, American. Let's talk briefly since you mentioned it, uh, the petrodollar and that's sort of the end game as you talk about the demise of the petrodollar. But right now, you look at the world and everyone has seen the massive drop in oil prices, nominally at least, uh, as well as a substantial decline in the ruble and, and interesting comments coming out of OPEC. So sort of lay out for us where we are today in terms of Russia's economy and the ruble, America and the dollar, and what's going on with oil more broadly. Definitely, we're at the uh, the calm before the storm, and, and that's why we put this book out, to really explain to people what the risks are moving forward over the next few decades. It is because things are, people have taken the, the good way of life so for granted, risks are being ignored, and the risks are very real. If you look at the demise of the ruble, that's exactly what the Russians want in this situation, because over 50% of the revenue comes from oil and natural gas. So if you actually price Brent oil, that's the index they use for their pricing, oil is still in a bull market because they sell this oil. And even though their room is down, they're bringing in other dollars. So they're actually still in a bull market for oil. Now, granted, their revenues are less. But if you look at what's going on in North America now, you take the Bakken where you know, the average with the differentials, the price the Bakken producers actually sell for is now less than what they can uh, produce the oil for. So there's a lot of changes going around here. And because of the North American innovation and shale fracking and drilling, we've been able to import less oil from OPEC and other exporting nations. Now we're becoming the, the pinch point where OPEC is at war with not just Russia, but also North American shale. And this is going to become a very important part of the future energy matrix of North America. So if 
we stay down at these prices because of all of the, let's say, easy money and the low interest rates, a lot of money has gone into the oil patch. There's a lot of risks here now in defaulting on debts, production uh, uh, reductions, and this will now be a critical point for America where the emerging markets such as China, India, they are now aligning themselves up with certain members of OPEC, with Russia, and because of the failed foreign policy under Obama, America is now starting to become alienated from the emerging markets. So ultimately, you see sort of a bipolar world where it's the U.S. and our, our few remaining allies, it seems like, and a Russia, China, the Arab world, OPEC being aligned against the U.S. How does Russia come out on top of that heap? Because obviously China is a strong country and the Arab countries have all the oil wealth as well, in addition to the oil wealth that, of course, Russia has. And and after after you jump into this, we should probably take a step back and talk about just a canvas of what natural resources does Russia have and how big are they versus everyone else? Sure. So in our book, The Colder War, we've got many videos on our website, colderwar.com, and we really get into the details of what's going on. So let's take a, a long ally of America has been Saudi Arabia. You know, there's a lot of changes going on in Saudi Arabia that our Western media is not talking about. It really is the shaky house of Saud. We have a whole chapter discussing that. And more important, what people are really neglecting to pay attention to is these Gulf states, these these Arab countries that are so wealthy in oil, that is true. But if you look at the amount they're exporting, the domestic demand is increasing significantly. And there's a lot of political instability building in these regions. We just have to be reminded of the Arab Spring to see what could happen. So what truly is different between the first Cold War and where we are now in the Colder War? In the first Cold War, it was essentially capitalism versus communism. And it was America and its allies versus the communist states run by USSR. The big difference here in the Colder War now, it's really America and its, you know, aging allies of the indebted nations such as Japan and Western Europe. And then you look at the emerging markets, which is led and the leadership of Russia with China, India, and the other emerging markets that now need to fuel their economy. They need to secure long-term sources of energy. And then the wild card here is exactly what you've mentioned, what's going on with the Arab states. So even though Saudi Arabia has been a long-term supply uh, ally with America, it actually sells much more oil to China. And will Saudi Arabia go away from selling in U.S. dollars? If Saudi Arabia starts selling in yuan because they're now number one sales go to China, usually the, the, the customer dictates what type of prices and what type of uh, currency we're going to trade in. Just as America was at one time Saudi Arabia's number one customer, now America is a major competitor to Saudi Arabia, to Kuwait, to Qatar for natural gas. So the game has really been changed and we lay out all these aspects in the book. So it's not just a new world order aligning itself between the old debted nations versus the emerging markets, but the real wild card is which way is OPEC and they lean towards, and it sure looks like OPEC's leaning towards the emerging markets because that's where its customers now, a are. a question for you. Um, much of your book is about economics, and to sort of give listeners the arc of your argument, basically synthesizing it down, it's the fact that 
Russia is basically scrambling for to control natural resources all over the world, which they can use as leverage then against, for example, Europe, against potentially the Arab states if they wanted to. And basically, instead of using the force of nuclear weapons, let's say, as a threat, they can use economics as a weapon. My question is, does ideology still matter in Russia today, or is it purely about economics and the power that economics brings? Both matter significantly. If you look at really the Western media, we, we paint Putin as a Hitler-like character, a buffoon, a bully, you know, this, uh, this egotistical maniac. But the reality in Russia, he is more popular now than ever before. His moves on Crimea, uh, Crimea the national pride in Russia, and I've got many uh, colleagues that work in Russia and the energy patch, and we have to be very aware of what's going on in the emerging markets. How important is Russia in the global energy matrix? Very important. Let's just start for, first start with oil. Russia's been the number one or two oil producer for the last 100 years. That's significant. Let's take natural gas. The largest natural gas producer uh, company in the world is Russian. Russia has 25% of all of the conventional natural gas in the world. They're very significant. If you look at countries like Germany and Eastern, um, Eastern Europe, Germany has been importing more Russian oil and more natural gas than they did 25 years ago. For example, Germany has increased their dependence on Russian imports by over 50% in the last decade. That is significant. What about America? Does it affect the average American? You better believe it, it does. A lot of people don't realize, and you'll never see this in the Western media, for the last 25 years, one in every 10 homes in America have been electrified, have been powered by Russian nuclear fuel. That's 10% of America's energy grid has been powered by Russian nuclear fuel. These are risks that are significant. So let's talk about in a global perspective, almost half of the world's uranium resources are within the sphere of influence of Russia. Almost half of the world's enrichment capacity of uranium is within the sphere of influence of Russia. This is significant. And if you look at what's going on globally, the Russians are investing significantly in the emerging markets to, to provide a long-term stable supply of energy sources for countries like China. The world's largest construction project in China and Russia for natural gas, that's just phase one. This project's going to have many phases. It's going to end up being an over a trillion dollar deal. That is the largest ever economic deal on a specific project in the history of mankind. So in addition to the tangible resources that Russia has and the ability to ultimately leverage those resources against those who don't want to comply with what Russia seeks, there's the sort of final phase of the plan, which you lay out in great detail, which is the demise of the petrodollar. So talk a little bit about the history of the petrodollar, in other words, how it came about, what advantages that provides for the U.S., and then what the effect would be if the petrodollar goes by the wayside. And incidentally, as I'm sure you could detail, we've seen a number of stories of currency deals between other countries in currencies besides the U.S. dollar, which fits into your whole worldview here. Sure. So the, the, the critical date was August 15, 1971, when uh, President Nixon closed the gold window. Essentially, the French, Charles de Gaulle, didn't like the foreign policy and what America was doing globally. And at the time, America's U.S. dollar was linked to gold. And the French said, tell you what, here's our U.S. dollars. Give us our gold. And that really startled the American government. And to prevent the speculators from destroying the dollar, 
Nixon closed the window, the gold standard window. At the same time, we have we have the 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 crisis in 1973, where the oil embargoes on America and its allies really shot the price of oil up significantly. So you had speculators going after the U.S. dollar and an oil embargo. So it was an oil crisis for America at the time. So you had these two critical. So Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State at the time, came up with the plan to go to Saudi Arabia, which was the, the, the strongest producer, the strongest leader within OPEC, and said, okay, let's cut a deal here. If you promise to produce and sell all of your oil in terms of U.S. dollars and reinvest your excess reserves in our government and in our dollar, we will provide you military support and government support to establish your family within this kingdom. And the way Saudi Arabia went within OPEC, then Kuwait followed, UAE followed, Qatar followed, and the rest of OPEC followed. That was the establishment of the petrodollar. So essentially what it means is OPEC trades in terms of U.S. dollar, and now their reserves, for example, Saudi Arabia has over $700 billion in U.S. reserves. The Russians have a little over $400 billion. So that's the establishment of the petrodollar. What are the risks here now? Well, America, with its failed foreign policy under the Obama administration, has really pushed the emerging markets to start working together. And we've seen all of these huge transactions in non-U.S. dollars. If you look at the currency swaps within even France and Canada in non-U.S. dollars, this is significant within just allies of America. But let's focus more on where things are going to go. So if you look at Saudi Arabia's number one partner is China, yes, the Chinese have U.S. reserves. But at the same time, they have to create a demand for their yuan, their currency. So as the world shifts their production, as OPEC shifts its sales to the emerging markets, the importance of the U.S. dollar decreases. Now, why is this important to the average American? Well, if the petrodollar dies or even weakens, immediately the average cost of living for the average American will double significantly. Where you know your bread costs two dollars a loaf, it's going to be four fifty a loaf. You'll see significant inflation. Your interest rates will be higher, so your power bill will be higher, your mortgage will be higher, and across the board, that is why it's so significant for the average American to protect themselves and prepare for the colder war. Where do some of the recent stories about hacking, hackings emanating in Russia of financial information at big institutions, as well as the buzzing of both American planes and planes for countries in Russia's immediate orbit, where do those factor into this grand strategy that you lay out? Well, you see, there's so many elements happening at the same time. And with this connected world, we're finding a lot more out immediately with this wired and connected world than than the first Cold War. So you see all this spying and what happened in, in last summer, even between U.S. and Germany, you know, even its own allies, even America's own allies within the European Union and Middle East are now really frustrated and don't trust the administration. So a big question that the rest of the world, the emerging markets within China, within Russia, with India, is how can we establish ourselves where, you know, the, the political agenda, for example, we just saw how Turkey and Russia actually have a lot of negative forces on negative opinions on what's going on in Syria, where Russia's back, Syria, uh, Assad, the, the leader there, and the Turkey, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, fighting Assad. So the Russians and Turkey were on opposite sides of that agenda, but yet they put aside their political differences, and they're now signing a major long-term deal for the natural gas, because Turkey is the second largest consumer of Russian natural gas, which Germany's number one, 
And by 2018, China will become number one. So you see how the world is moving towards energy deals rather than a political agenda. And Americans have to make a major decision here which way they're going to be going in the next election. If they continue under the failed foreign policy that they've had over the last six years, they will be Americans will be alienating themselves further from the emerging markets. Unfortunately, where does American fracking uh, fit in all of this? Is that a is the production of natural gas a threat to Russia, or does Russia instead look at it as another area that they can exploit and potential deals they can get in on with American explorers? No, you you won't see the Russians invest with yeah you won't see the Russians investing significantly with North American oil patch. What the Russians look at is the technology. You've seen Exxon do a major deal with Rosneft, which is the largest producer of oil in the world that's publicly traded. And for the Russians, it's about bringing this North American technology to the Arctic. And people forget that Russia is the world's largest country. They have the largest resource, uh, resource potential in oil, natural gas, and uranium. And, and the Russians want to bring in the North American technology. Now, is the North American shale sector a, a competitor or a risk to Russians? Definitely, but not in the near term. The infrastructure is not built yet in place for Germany to completely switch over to uh, North American natural gas. It still gets one-third of all of its natural gas. No, OPEC won't cut back, and here's why. And we were right, and we've had videos about it where I interviewed one of the four senior officials of OPEC about it at our website. Essentially, the refined products, the liquids, the NGLs, the natural gas liquids, and the condensates, the Americans are now exporting and becoming a major competitor to OPEC. Hence, the shale sector become a, a swing producer that's competing with OPEC. And more importantly, the Americans went from being the number one customer of Saudi Arabia and other OPEC nations now to a competitor. So this the success of the U.S. shale has been the big one for OPEC. You mentioned Russia. Rosneft. And one of the fascinating parts of your book is that you talk in depth about the growth of all of basically the de facto state-controlled, in effect, companies in Russia, which are led by those who are in Putin's inner circle, his sphere of influence. Talk a little bit about the rise of Rosneft, because I think it gives great insight into Putin's strategy and how he tries to use basically elements of capitalism uh, as part of a sort of totalitarian plan and a centrally planned economy. Sure. Well, you can't talk about Rosneft's uh, conception and evolution without talking about Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Yukos. So let's go back to the fall of USSR. And one of the savvy, young, uh, brilliant, you know, entrepreneurs who walked the line of legal versus illegal at the time was Mikhail Khodorkovsky. So essentially, he came up. He wrote a uh, basically a book on you know. To be comparable with the Chinese, to be rich is to be glo uh, glorious. And he really established a network within Yeltsin's government in the fall of USSR. And he had a bank called Minatep, which essentially would loan the state money for assets or security on those assets. Now, you have to remember, in the West, it's hard for us to comprehend why the Russians would allow this. But, you know, if you were in communism for your whole life, you wouldn't really understand what uh, capitalism is about. And Mikhail Kordovsky and other oligarchs like him really capitalized and took advantage of this. So when Yeltsin's uh, ratings were at all-time low, less than 5% approval ratings, 
he loaned uh, Minatev Kordorovsky's bank essentially loaned money on pennies on the dollar for the assets of the state producing assets which essentially became Yukos so put it in this way what Kordorovsky bought these assets for he got all of his money back and just dividends in the first three months so they essentially stole these assets for pennies on the dollar when Putin came in power in early 2000 he established a rule with the oligarchs essentially saying look you guys as influence within Russia in the media in the business and banking and politics is too much I'll let you keep what you have but stay out of politics and the oligarchs that obeyed and worked with Putin ended up succeeding and keeping their wealth the oligarchs who went against Putin and wanted to overthrow him and fight him head-on such as Kordorovsky didn't do as well and essentially Putin took on the largest oligarch first which was Mikhail Kordorovsky took over his assets using the rule of law within Russia and put him in jail and other close associates of him so essentially these assets went to default they went into bankruptcy court and they went up for auction uh, essentially a shell company uh, got the assets which had no production uh, a shell company that was only valued at three hundred dollars essentially got assets worth billions of dollars the next day or sorry within a week it got bought out by essentially Rosneft so you know that it was a deal within the group and that today is now the world's largest publicly traded oil producer in the world and if you look at what's going on from a, a, a Russian agenda it was first get control of the Russian assets prevent any foreigners from owning the major assets control your own production control your own resources and you will control your own destiny as Putin uh, did all this the price of oil worked incredibly well for him and we got into the greatest bull market of the last hundred years in resources and that strengthened his agenda not just domestically but also internationally and that you know case study within oil is the same for natural gas as it is in steel as it is in uranium and other resources and uh, that's essentially the strength of Russia and their resources are so vast and they are so critical to all resources in the in the global matrix of not just energy but also so hard from assets. a contrarian perspective um, obviously those natural resources are going to provide strength for Russia no matter what on the other hand, these enterprises are basically state enterprises. They don't have the management that we would have in the U.S. I assume that like other centrally planned ventures, there are Russian companies that fail. Uh, will Russia be a case study also in the failures of central planning like we're starting to see in China? I would actually disagree with that statement. What a lot of people don't understand and fail to recognize because we grew up with this uh, you know the good versus the evil and 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 we're the good guys and the communists were the bad guys and and the Russians are you know as I call it Joe vodka uh, that that's actually couldn't be further from the truth if you look at from the fall of the USSR uh, Soviet production of oil got down to about 4.6 million barrels they brought in North American technology a lot of people don't realize that in the 90s the Russians were fracking and doing horizontal drilling before those same companies that came from Canada were doing it in Canada so the Russians brought in technology and they were able to bring their production from about 4.6 million barrels and within a decade got it to well over nine and a half million barrels so they doubled their production 
you look at the importance of that. So there's a lot of smart technology. There's a lot of brilliant executives within Russia. So to say that you know they are in the same standpoint as a Soviet planning or central planning that they experienced in the USSR, let's not fool ourselves. The Russians have learned a lot from why the Soviet Union failed. Uh, but like any industry, whether it's in Canada or the US or Europe or China or in Russia, you will have businesses that fail the drill drilling is always risky might not find the deposit that they expected or the prices aren't economic so there will be failures but uh, Russia is up to speed on technology you know the Russians have much better drilling rigs in Russia than Western Europe has so there, there, a lot has changed in the last 20 years last question Russia. what can America do to change the trajectory of the growth of and the threat from Russia, and what should individual investors do to protect themselves? Well, these are two very important questions, and they're two very, very different questions. The first is, what can America do? Well, it has to start within the presidential administration, and they have to change their failed foreign policy. That's number one. As an individual, what you and I can do to profit from the Cold War, to protect your family from the Cold War, and we are in a Cold War. Uh, the, the leader of uh, Germany, Angela Merkel, just came out and said we are in a new Cold War. Gorbachev came out and said we are in a new, uh, new Cold War. Henry Kissinger, the guy who created the petrodollar and saved America, came out and said we are in a new Cold War. And he's leaning towards the Russian side saying America's making a lot of mistakes and the Russians are doing what, you know, they're more reactionary to the policies within America forcing the Amer uh, Russians to do these agenda. At the end of the day, it is our responsibility to protect our families, to perfect our own destiny and our portfolios. And what you can do is invest in companies that are going to benefit from the colder war. Have some gold exposure to protect yourself from a demise of the U.S. dollar. Now, I know it sounds right now with the U.S. dollar very strong compared to, let's say, the Japanese yen or the euro or the ruble. But remember, it, it's you're always at the most risk when everyone's neglecting all the risks. The name of the book is The Colder War, How the Global Energy Trade Swipped from America's Grasp. And the author is Marin Katusa. Marin, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.